1990, the second and best Batman film came out, The Dark Knight. A bunch of us went to see it in the cinema, but uh, in my group of friends, there was an international student. She was called Vivian, and she had never even heard of Batman before. And afterwards, as we sort of came out of the film and we were talking about it together, she confessed that she hadn't really understood much of what was going on, especially with the kind of mysterious character of Batman himself. You see, if you want to understand Batman, especially the whole thing about the bats and the wealthy parents' background, all of that kind of thing, you really need to have seen Batman Begins. The story of how young Master Bruce Wayne becomes the Batman. If you want to understand who someone is, why they are, what they're like, we need to know where they come from. We need the, the origin story. And that's what Genesis is for us. Genesis means beginnings, origins. This is the origin story of the human race. And as we go through this, this whole series in Genesis, as we look at our beginnings, we're going to understand more of who we are, what our lives are for, why we're like what we're like as human beings, why the world is as it is. But I do just want to say uh, right up front, one question I'm not going to be addressing this morning is how. I appreciate that Genesis raises lots of questions about the relationship between the Bible and science, particularly how the world was made, how long it took. Can I say those are important questions, they matter. If you want to chat about those afterwards, I'm really happy to, to talk with you about those. My decision not to explore those questions this morning is not because they don't matter. They are important, but simply because that's not the main focus of what the writer of Genesis is trying to get across to us. And it's to ask a question that Genesis isn't really trying to answer. It would be a bit like uh, going to the Sistine Chapel, looking up at the ceiling and asking, I wonder how Michelangelo did that? Instead of actually considering the amazing painting itself. Because Moses' primary concern in writing Genesis is not how, but who. There's a word that comes up 35 times in this passage, more times than there are verses, in fact, so easy you could miss it. It's God. He is the person who's in focus. Actually, he's the only person in the narrative who actually does anything. Genesis 1 is first and foremost about God, who he is, what he's like, why he put us here. And as we get to know God, we'll find that we actually get to know the world and ourselves better too. Genesis 1 is the origin story. It's the story of God, the world, and you. The story of God, the world, and you. And we start with God. Now, if you were with us last week when we looked at Psalm 8, we, uh, we, we saw that creation is not really about itself. It's about God. Creation is singing, speaking, shouting to us about the majesty of God, the creator. And there's so much that we could pull out of this encounter that tells us about God. I just want to focus on two things. They're the two things that Paul identifies in Romans 1. God's eternal power and his divine nature. Because those opening words of verse 1, they're packed with significance, aren't they? In the beginning, God. 
And in the beginning, that God created the heavens and the earth. You see, God is the one and only. And he made everything. The heavens and the earth, the totality of everything in existence, owes its life to God. So there are not lots of different gods for lots of different things in the universe. There is one God, the one and the only. But God is also distinct from what he's made. Verse 1 tells us that everything has a beginning except for him. God didn't find some pre-existing eternal matter that was sort of eternal like him that just happened to be lying around. Only God is uniquely eternal. Before the beginning, without a beginning, God was there. And he simply is never beginning never becoming, never needing, never improving, never changing. God is there and he's there to be dealt with on his own terms. God simply and absolutely is. And so when he creates, he doesn't create with or against other gods. He doesn't need any assistance. There isn't any struggle in this creation. Genesis 1 makes it really clear that while there might be rebels in God's kingdom, and we're going to get to them in a couple of weeks, there are no rivals. The sun and the moon are given this really quite lengthy treatment for the the narrative in verses 14 to 19 to show they're not a pantheon of pagan gods like lots of ancient people thought. The stars and the moon, they're just another part of God's creation. The stars in verse 16, they're mentioned almost as a kind of afterthought, aren't they? The great sea creatures of verse 21 are not rival chaos gods, but merely God's creatures. The eternal God of Genesis 1 is absolutely sovereign. He creates with freedom, with wisdom, with joy, and with power. And his power is so evident, isn't it, in how he creates. Uh, The test of someone's power and authority is the impact of their words. As I know all too well, parents often say things to their children that may sound authoritative. They may mean it to be authoritative. But the real test of authority of the words is whether the children obey. But God, he simply speaks. Even to things that don't yet exist. And it happens. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be. And it was so. Pretty much the only thing I can do that with is Alexa. And even then, to be honest, it doesn't work 100% of the time. But God speaks and it is done. A whole universe created out of nothing is brought into being by the power of God's word. We live in God's world created by God's word. And that same powerful word which spoke this whole universe into existence is coming to us to you right now every time you open the bible and read it god's power that same power that made the world is at work and it never returns to him empty that's why our confidence as a church is not in the quality of our products It's not in our excellent music or our warm welcome or whatever it is. Our confidence is in the power of God's word to bring new life. 
creation shows God's eternal power. And it also reveals his divine nature. One of the things that this account is designed to show its original readers is that the universe that we live in is not the universe of pagan mythology, whether that's of Egypt or Babylon or or Canaan. In each of those accounts, creation is either the result of chaotic forces of good and evil battling for supremacy. And so in one Babylonian account, the universe is made from the leftover carcass of a defeated god. Or else the universe is some kind of cosmic accident, vomited out by a god after a heavy night out. Or creation is made simply for us to serve the gods because they they need us to give them the stuff that they can't be bothered to do for themselves. Do you see, in each of those different accounts, creation is either the accidental or chaotic result of pretty questionable ethics. And that has massive implications for for us, for, for what we're about, why we're here. But Genesis 1 tells us that creation is none of those things. Nor, can I say, is it the sterile, aimless universe of atheism. In that kind of universe, the kind of universe that Dawkins and others like him sort of tell us about, our origins are from absolute zero. And our ending will be absolute zero. And so our lives, short as they are in the middle, mean absolutely zero. We might try to impose some kind of meaning for the short term, but that is ultimately pointless in a universe that comes from nothing and is going to nothing. But Genesis 1 shows us that's not the case. This world is the result of the intentional and deliberate work of a good God. Seven times we're here in this passage, and God saw that it was good. On the last of those, after creation of humanity, it is very good. It's a a perfect goodness, a, a wholesome goodness, a complete goodness. And the goodness of creation reveals the goodness and generosity of the God who made it. Of course, that alerts us to the fact, doesn't it, that the mess and misery of our lives comes from another source, another time, and another place. It does not come from God. But you see also this passage, it, it hints, doesn't it, at the proper divine nature of God, the, the triune nature of God. If, if you look closely, in, in verse 1 we see God creating by his word, verse 3. And in verse 2, the spirit is mysteriously there as well. There's one God, and yet there seems to be sort of three distinct agents of creation. In verse 26, we get another hint as well, because God says, let us make mankind in our image. It's just a hint, isn't it? But for those with eyes to see, with those who've read the New Testament... We know, don't we, this is hinting at the triune nature of God, God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And can I just tell you this morning, that's not just pointless theological speculation or information. That makes all the difference in the world. Because the source of this universe and our lives is not nothing. And so we're not going to nothing either, nor is it the chaotic pantheon of pagan gods, nor 
Is it the lonely, isolated God of Islam? See, in Islam, Allah is alone in eternity. And he knows everything about power, but nothing about love. Allah knows everything there is to know about supremacy, but nothing about sharing. Allah knows everything there is to know about command and control, but nothing about community. But the good news of Genesis 1 is that the source of this universe is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have been in community, loving one another for all eternity. And they are inviting us in to share in that love. This world is not the result of blind fate or brute force, but loving fellowship. The overflow of the love and goodness of God towards us. So Genesis 1 shows us God, his eternal power and his divine nature. And secondly, it shows us the world. In verse 1, God creates everything. But in verse 2, our focus narrows in on the earth. Particularly, we're told that the earth was formless and empty. In Hebrew, it's a, a lovely sounding phrase. The earth is tohu vavohu. You can go home and show off with some Hebrew. It, it, it's formless and empty. It's orderless and uninhabitable, barren and void. It's a dark, watery, wilderness wasteland. In verse 2, the earth is a grey, lifeless lump of clay. It's devoid of life. It's a, a big rock hanging in empty space. But the Spirit of God is there, moving mysteriously over this watery wilderness wasteland, hovering over the deep, dark abyss like a, a mother eagle over the nest of its young, brooding, pregnant with creative power. And then in verse 3, this God of eternal power and loving fellowship, this God of order and abundance and goodness, gets to work. And I want you to see that what God does in these six days of creation is to take a formless and empty world and form it in, in days 1 to 3 and fill it in days 4 to 6 like this. Three days of forming, addressing the formlessness, and three days of filling, addressing the emptiness. So on day one, God separates the light from the darkness, forming the day and the night. And on day four, did you see God fills those spaces with the sun and the moon to govern the day and the night. On day two, God separates the waters above from the waters below. The sea and the sky are formed. And then on day five, God fills those spaces with fish and birds. On day three, God separates the land from the sea, forming them. And then on day six, God fills the land with all kinds of living creatures. But there's also a special kind of bonus creative act on days three and day six. On day three, in addition to separating the land from the sea and forming those realms... God also begins to fill the land. He causes vegetation to sprout up, commanding it to produce plants and trees. And on day six, in addition to all the other living creatures, the climax of creation is humanity. 
And the plants from day three are given to the human beings from day six, forming and filling. You see the way that the sort of three correspond and match each other. There is a beautiful order to this world. We feel that in the the rhythmic repetition of the account. This is not random or erratic, but deliberate and harmonious. And that is the basis for modern science. Galileo, Newton, Kepler, they did their work based on this assumption. That because the universe is made and ordered by, by an orderly God, the world functions in predictable ways. We can reliably observe patterns and sequences. Science and God are not opposed to each other. But there's also a a lavish abundance to this world, isn't there? Which reflects the bountiful generosity of God. It's it's filled, day, day four, not just with a few stars here and there, but with billions and billions and billions of the things. Not just a few species of animals, but millions of different kinds. Aardvarks, beetles, crabs, dolphins, elephants, flamingos, gorillas, hippopotamus, iguanas. And this world is not just filled with a few species of plants, but hundreds of thousands of types of trees and shrubs and herbs and climbers and creepers. And all of that is very deliberate. I wonder if you felt, as Villica read that passage to us, this is all very human, isn't it? This passage is all from a human perspective. Despite the glory of the heavens, the focus is the earth. When it comes to the vegetation, it's either a plant or a tree. Basically, I think it's asking, is it taller than me or smaller than me? When it comes to the animals, they're either livestock or wild animals. Basically, is it useful to me if I'm a human being or not? It's almost as if the whole world was made with us in mind. And it was. Just like um, like new parents get the baby's room ready, freshly painted and furnished before the baby arrives, that's what's happening in this account. God is getting everything ready, just right, for the arrival of humanity. This, the whole purpose of creation is to make a home for us. This world is God's gift to us. We are not here to provide for God as his lackeys. God is not lacking in anything. He does not need us to give him food or sacrifices or service or even worship. The opposite is true. We are here So God can provide for us out of his lavish abundance. This world is just right for humanity. It's the Goldilocks zone. Precisely the right level of oxygen in the air so we can breathe without suffocating. Precisely the right distance from the sun so we can be warm without burning up. Precisely the right pull of gravity so we stay put but are not crushed. All those things are just so you change them by 0.1% and our lives would be over. Because this world was made by a good God for this purpose. That you might know and love and enjoy him forever. 
Which brings us to our last point. God, the world, and lastly, you. You. The narrative makes it really clear, doesn't it, that the making of human beings is the climax of this creation account. Human beings are created last, the the special day six creative act. But the whole tone of the narrative changes, doesn't it, with the creation of humanity. It slows down to give us the details. Now, now, human beings are not totally different. Like the animals, we're made from the dust of the earth, formed from the ground. We're given the same sort of stuff to eat. But there is something unique, something special about human beings. God doesn't say, let there be human beings. No, verse 26 is different. It's more personal. Let us make. No other creature has the amazing dignity of God actually speaking to us directly. And it's only with the arrival of humanity that creation goes from good to very good. We have an enormously privileged position in God's plans. Human beings are set apart by deliberate divine plan. Let us make. We're set apart by this divine pattern. We're in his image and likeness. And we're set apart for a divine purpose so that they may rule. Human beings are made to be like God, to embody and represent, to make visible the invisible God in creation. So, like God, who is the ruler of this world, we are made to rule under God as his caretakers and his stewards. We're to rule in the way that God does. So it's not a license for exploitation or subjugation, which is what we've become known for. Rather, like God, who forms and fills his creation, human beings are to form and fill the world. We, we form the earth by subduing it and ruling over it, and we fill it by being fruitful and multiplying, so that God is seen and known across the whole world. Uh, Look, I I guess for most of us here this morning, it's pretty old hat, isn't it, all of that? That we're made in the image and likeness of God. But to the first readers, that idea is radical and revolutionary. The first readers of of this account, they lived in a world where only one person could claim to be in God's image, to represent God on the earth, to rule in God's place, Pharaoh. That was Pharaoh's claim in Egypt, and so it was absolutely fine for him to make slaves of everyone else. But Genesis 1 says no. All humanity is made in the image of God. All humanity is made to rule in God's world. Even Moses' original audience, slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, are in fact royalty. They are related to the king of creation. Only the Bible has this radical equality of all kinds of people. That every single man, woman, child, unborn child, regardless of their age or intelligence or ability or disability or economic status or skin color, every single human being bears this divine image and so has enormous significance, worth and value given to them by God. That's why we love the queen, isn't it? Because even though she was the queen, she didn't act like it. 
She, she, she treated us not as if she was over us, but as if she was one of us. That's why so many people loved her, because she, she knew that truth of Genesis 1. Now, that obviously has massive implications for us as human beings, and we'll explore those more in the coming weeks. But basically, what we're seeing in Genesis 1 is this. This is the pattern. Human beings are created under God and over creation. Under God, over creation. And the message of Genesis 1, the point of that pattern, is that God is making a claim on our lives. He's making a claim on our flourishing as human beings. Genesis 1 is telling us that we flourish only when we live according to the maker's instructions, when we live according to that pattern. That is bad news for arrogance and independence. But that is good news if you want to make sense of life, the universe and everything. Because Genesis 1 is showing us that Jesus' kind and loving rule is good for you. It's good for you. It's good for your sexuality, for your body, for your family, for your finances. Do you trust that? Do you trust that God's rule is is good for us as human beings? Because our problems come when we don't. Sin is basically just to reverse that pattern because we we don't trust that God's rule is good for us. And that's why our world is not the world of Genesis 1 anymore. It's why it's not the perfect home for us anymore. But I want to finish by by showing us that God is determined to get us back to this place. Humanity made in the image of God is the crowning apex of creation day six is the climax but it is not the conclusion there's another day the seventh day it's a a special distinct unique from all the other days having finished his work of creation God blesses this seventh day he sets it apart sanctifies it for rest now this is not God resting like us when we rest we collapse from exhaustion at the end of a long week God does not get tired. Rather, this is the rest of enjoyment. It's the celebration of completement, uh, delighting in what he's made, reveling in its beauty and goodness. And I want you to notice there is no end. All of the other days have this same pattern. There was, uh, there was evening and there was morning, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. But this day has no end. There is no evening or morning. What's happening in day seven is God is moving into his world, taking up residence in his creation to live with his people, to dwell with us. And he's inviting us to share in his eternal rest. God's purpose is that for the rest of eternity, we would not only share his rule and his reign but also the blessing of his joyful, everlasting rest. That's where this is all going. God's ultimate purpose, the goal of this world, is that we might dwell with him as his people, that we would know his blessing, that we would know and love and enjoy him forever. 
And God has not given up on that plan of the seventh day. That is why Jesus came. Jesus came into this world as God, wrote himself into the story to deal with the sin that has ruined God's good world through his death on the cross. Jesus came to restore the image of God in us that's been tarnished, renewing us by his spirit. Jesus came to redeem for himself a new humanity, recreated by him, who would obey God and flourish under his kind and loving rule. Jesus came to remake this broken world to bring about a new heavens and a new earth where his people, where we will share forever in his rule and the blessing of his joyful rest. In the uh, epic of Atrahasis, it's the Babylonian creation myth, the gods get tired of working. And so they murder a fellow god, they mix his blood with the dirt, and create human beings as their slaves. This is what they say. You can go and see this, by the way, in the British Museum. They say, create a human being that they may bear the yoke. Let man assume the drudgery of the gods. How different is our God? He creates not with the blood of death, but with the breath of life. And in his eyes, humanity are not slaves to serve him, but rulers to share his rest. And so this is what Jesus says to us today, right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us into his perfect, endless, eternal rest. Let's pray together. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things by your will, they were created and have their being. Father, we worship you and praise you that you are so good and so generous in giving us this world as a, a home for us to live in. And we praise you that even though we've ruined it, through the precious blood of Christ, you are redeeming it, making us new, making everything new. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue.